on the move because uh, I got an hour in front of me with a conversation that I've been waiting to have in this hour. Dr. Angel Jones on her push for black bereavement leave and the pushback she's received for daring to publicly advance such a bold idea. Here's the question. Do black folk deserve time off work to grieve and process their emotions when subjected to the pain and suffering caused oftentimes by white supremacy? It's a question worth wrestling with, and I am delighted to wrestle with it in this hour, for the hour, with Dr. Angel Jones. In a Times Higher Education piece published last month, uh, this uh, professor at uh, Southern Illinois University uh, questioned why administrators expect black educators to return to work as usual instead of being granted time to grieve and to process their emotions. And when that piece was published in Times Higher Education, Dr. Angel Jones, what was the response to what you had written? Um, hi. Um, the response from faculty members from other black folks has been very positive, um, but when right-wing media found it, um, they have been not too pleased with me. Um, I have received thousands of emails, hate mail, death threats, um, so you can say that folks are not happy with me or my suggestion right now. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, let me start at the beginning, as they say. Give me a better understanding of what you and the audience of what you. I read the piece, of course, but give the audience a better understanding of what you had to say in the article. Uh, just give us the bullets, and we got an hour, so you don't feel don't feel stressed or pressed. Uh, give us a sense of what the argument was that you were advancing in the piece about black bereavement leave. Take your time. Um, yeah, so the, the the main message of the article was talking about racial battle fatigue. And what that is, it's a term that was coined by Dr. William A. Smith out of the University of Utah. And it talks about both the psychological and physiological consequences of experiencing racism on a consistent, prolonged basis. So some of those psychological consequences are things like increased anxiety, increased depression, increased suicidal thoughts. But then there are also these physical manifestations in our body. So we have elevated heart rate, increased blood pressure, uh, stomach ulcers, tension headaches, right? So all of these physical things that are happening to us because of the, the racism that we experience, both outright racism and racial microaggressions. Um, so in the article, I was just talking about um, not just the hostile racial environments that we experience in higher ed, but well, what does it look like for us to acknowledge but us as black faculty and staff in higher education have to deal with based on what's happening outside. Um, so every time something happens in our world where a, a black person is killed by the police, I always send out an e- email to my, my students just uh, creating space for them, um, having one-on-ones with them. But no one talks about, like, well, what is it like for us, right? So what is the emotional trauma that I'm experiencing that I have to put aside to take care of and, and support my students? So what would it look like if universities acknowledge our humanity as a black faculty and supported us with our emotional trauma that we're experiencing as well. Because you are an academician, I, I totally get why you would focus on those in the academy. Um, but is this notion of black bereavement leave something um, that is only uh, apropos for those who are black in the academy? Absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. When, when I originally had the article on my heart, um, I was I, I was writing it for everyone. But when Tom Tyrod um, reached out to me. I, I decided to make it higher, higher ed specific, but this by no means um, is just for academics and scholars. Mm. Um, when you use this term "black bereavement leave," um, is that a term you coined, or did it come from someplace else? Um, I guess you could say I coined it, but I don't. 
I mean, I don't know if, if anyone else has, no. has ever used it, so I, I, so I, I don't want to take credit for something, but I've, I've never heard it outside of. No, girl, you, you, you better you better own it, girl. If if it's yours, own it. Don't 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 shy away from it. Just just own it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't yeah, and own it and 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 get it and get it trademarked, get it copywritten, whatever you do. If you own it, don't don't give it away now. Um, so so when you when you when you came up with this term, uh, I get it. Uh, but but tell me as you were thinking about these things, how you settled on this notion of black bereavement leave. Um, I think like when I think about it, it really is a mental health day or mental health days, plural, just depending on what that person needs to help process the psychological trauma that they're experiencing, those physiological um, consequences that I talked about. Um, it really is, it, it, it's just that. Um, it is not what the right has turned it into. Um, I feel like everyone needs mental health days for a plethora of, of reasons. But when I'm talking about black bereavement, I'm specifically talking about the racial battle fatigue that we are experiencing because of the racism that we experience. Mm. All right, when we come forward, I want to come um, back specifically to uh, the response you have received, uh, as you said, from the political right and the ways they've taken your words and sort of... Uh, uh, twisted them and bastardized them to mean something that you did not intend in your piece. I'm also just as curious about the kind of responses you've gotten from black folk uh, to this notion of black bereavement leave. We're talking with Southern Illinois University uh, professor Dr. Angel Jones about a piece that she wrote in Times Higher Education that's been talked about everywhere now. All kinds of response to this notion of whether or not black folk should be entitled to what she calls black bereavement leave. You're listening to Dr. Angel Jones on KBLA Talk 1580. You are indeed, and we're glad to have you uh, with us today. Uh, in this hour, we're talking with Dr. Angel Jones, professor at Southern Illinois University in the Department of Educational Leadership, uh, who wrote a, a provocative piece uh, not long ago in Times Higher Education, uh, questioning why administrators expect black educators to return right to work, right back to work, uh, instead of being granted time to grieve and process their emotions, it's what she calls black bereavement leave. And this article has uh, just uh, lit a fire <laughs> under the political right. Uh, we were talking in our first hour today, in case you missed it, it was an amazing conversation. I highly recommend that you go and check out the uh, podcast later today. As you know, all of our shows become podcasts. So if you missed our one today, we were in conversation with Dr. Janet uh, uh, Dewitt Bell, uh, last name Bell, makes her the wife, the widow, in fact, of the late, great Derek Bell, a longtime professor at Harvard, who is the father of CRT, critical race theory. So we were talking to uh, Janet Bell uh, about her work, of course, and we were spending most of our time talking about the relationship between the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, given that this is Women's History Month. We spent a lot of time in that hour in tribute to her late, great husband, Derek Bell, talking uh, about issues um, related to CRT and beyond. Uh, and here we are in this hour now uh, talking about a final hour today, talking about this notion of black bereavement leave, given that uh, uh, the things that so many of us have to go through. Of course, Angel Jones is an academician. So I said a moment ago that um, she has written this piece from the standpoint of academicians. But this is something that could apply to people sort of uh, sort of writ large, which leads me to, to, to start with this. Um, the way the political right uh, has demonized CRT uh, and that's the connection I wanted to make to our first hour. We now see the right uh, demonizing this notion of black bereavement leave. Um, so let me start with the right and then we'll come to, to the left and come to black folk and the kind of responses you've gotten from them 
uh, once you advance this notion of black bereavement leave. Tell me more expressly the kind of response you've gotten from the right, uh, the hate mail you referenced earlier, and what specifically they are saying. How are they twisting? How are they framing what you try to advance in your piece, Dr. Jones? Um, so in terms of the response, it started, I would say, last week. So the first, uh, I guess, right media outlet to pick it up was the Daily Mail, I think, on Thursday and Fox News over the weekend, the Post, Yahoo, so it's kind of been all over. Um, and it's clear that folks are just reading the, the, the headline and haven't actually read my article, um, because although I am I am advocating for, for black bereavement, I also talk about c- c- counseling, which is actually the first thing I talk about in terms of being, being a recommendation, but no, no one's focusing on that, um, but I've received, I think, I think I'm up to a thousand um, between my, my, my work email, my personal email, social media, they've even come to me on LinkedIn. Like, it's really outrageous right now, um, and typically it's calling me the N-word, um, t- t- telling me that I am a lazy black person who, you know, just wants free money from the government, um, telling me I should be lynched, I should be killed, um, all types of things like that. It's been, it's been pretty intense. Um, I don't know that you can, I don't know that you can answer this question, but let me ask it anyway. I hope you can. Um, beyond the the vitriol and you know the 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 stuff you just laid out that, that many of us get when we try to speak truth to power, um, that happens. Uh, it's not it's not it's not nice. It's not kind. It's not easy to digest. I get it. I've been at this a long time, um, but you get that kind of nonsense from people who are you know really sort of idiots and sort of non thinking, um, but. I am curious, though, as to what you've read or what you've had uh, a chance to, uh, to, 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 to drill down into with regard to the pushback against the notion that you've raised. Uh, intellectually, what kind of pushback are you getting uh, around this idea? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I don't think it's intellectual uh, pushback at all. Um, but a, a lot of it, which is what I get with, with most of my, my, my work as a public scholar, is this notion that racism doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, to me, the most fascinating thing is that folks are upset that I wrote an article about racial trauma, by, and, and now they're responding by creating additional racial trauma, mm-hmm. like by, by, you know, just saying they want to kill me and lynch me and calling me the N-word. Um, so, that, so I think that's, kind of the consistent thing that I always get is that I am playing the race card or I'm, or I'm, I'm, I'm a, a race fader um, or I'm talking about things that don't actually exist, um, even though they are proving time and time again with every single message, every single email that racism is, in fact, alive and well, that they think I'm making this whole thing up. Yep. Um, I say this all the time on this program. It's always fascinating for me on any given day how the dots sort of connect from one hour to the next hour to the final hour. And I, we can't plan that. Things just sort of happen um, in conversation, and uh, we never know where it's going to lead us. It just so happens, though, that in our last hour, we were talking about reparations. This station, as you probably know, is flagshipped in Los Angeles, California. We're heard across the nation, but we're here in California, and California is leading the nation right now. Uh, with our California Reparations Task Force. The task force has had its, its, its final uh, hearing, and now the task force is preparing its final report to be submitted to the state legislature, and California would decide what to do in reparations. We'll, we'll be the first state to do that. It's a test case for the nation, uh, for other states, for other cities. And so we were spending last hour talking about that. And so here is another dot that connects from last hour to this, and that is this notion of racial trauma. Um. Uh, again, I'm not naive in asking you this question, but why do you think that notion of racial trauma is so hard for other folk to wrap their brains around, Dr. Jones? 
I think because it requires them to take accountability for their part in causing racial trauma, right? Especially when we're looking at things like, like racial bias fatigue, right? It's not just, you know, nine minutes and 29 seconds of a knee on George Floyd's neck, right? It's also these daily racial microaggressions that almost everyone is guilty of, right? So if they're acknowledging or accepting the fact that racial trauma is being caused, they have to then wrestle with how they're complicit in causing that trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, black bereavement, uh, the leave part is what I want to focus uh, on now. Um, how do you imagine? How do you imagine that working? So, um, how would black people go about uh, pressing some claim uh, that they need to take a black bereavement leave? And how is that different from taking a sick day? I mean, or, or, or a vacation day? Give me, give me. I'm just trying to get a better sense of how this would actually uh, work. How it would actually uh, be applied. Um, I think I'm glad you talked about like the versus like a sick day versus a vacation day, and this is definitely not a vacation. Um, and I feel like a, a sick day to me isn't the same thing because sick days apply to everyone, right? And a lot of a lot by the right has come to me too, saying that you know I'm saying that you know black black trauma is more important than everyone else, and that's not at all what I said. My research is about black folks, my experiences as a black woman, so that's what I'm focusing on. Um, but I think for me, like, I see it as a mental, a mental health day. But I want to say mental health day that, that we don't have to explain, right? I think oftentimes because people don't acknowledge the racial trauma we experience, whether we're the direct um, recipient of the racism or we're watching people that look like us killed on television, um, I think because people don't acknowledge that, they don't understand why we would need a day off, right? So I think a lot of us don't ask for a day off or take a day off because we don't want to have to explain it. Or, 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 or defend it or justify it, right? So if it's something that schools are already doing, we can just say, hey, I need, I need time, right? And then that, that be enough um, without us having to explain it, but that's not how things currently are. So since you went there, let me follow you. How, how do you respond to persons who ask how this notion of black bereavement leave would differ from white bereavement leave? Um, uh, black folk have their issues, white folk have their issues, uh, we're all human, and we have ups and downs in our lives. So, how how do you respond to that 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 question? Uh, the, the the distinct difference between black bereavement uh, or white bereavement, as we'll call it for the sake of argument. <laughs> um, I mean, we're talking about racial trauma, right? And I, I think because this is specific, at least what I am arguing for, what I am talking about, is specific to us and the racial battle fatigue we're experiencing, the the, the psychological right, those psychological consequences that we're experiencing on a regular basis because of the racially hostile environments that we are forced to occupy. Um, and that, to me, is different from uh, other people. Um, but I don't believe it's my place to talk about the, the white experience or white trauma or whatever. Like, that's not my, that's not my, my lane. That's not my research. Um, but I, I will talk about other marginalized groups. Right? Like, I'm not saying that, you know, black folks are the only people that experience racial data fatigue because, because we're not. Um, all, all racially minoritized groups can and do experience racial battle fatigue. So my research specifically looks at black folks, so I don't believe in speaking on things that I don't actually know, know about, unlike the right and the other people that are coming for me. Mm. Um, so I specify black reason because that's what my work is about. Before I, before I ask you specifically about the response you've gotten from black people, um, tell me a bit more about the research that you do. 
Um, so I look at how black women specifically, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in the airport, so that's why you hear some folks walking by. Um, I, I look at how black women respond to and cope with gendered racial microaggressions. So what is that psychological um, impact that, that they are experiencing? Mm-hmm. And, and, and tell me a bit more about that. Um, yes, yeah, so I've looked at both undergraduate women, graduate women, and now my, my work is looking at uh, black, black women faculty and staff. Um, and every single woman I've interviewed talks about experiencing microaggressions at work. Um, their students talk about experiencing racial microaggressions in the, in the, in the, in the classroom, um, whether they're um, an undergrad, whether they're a graduate student. Um, they talk about just the racially hostile in, environment in, in general. Um, and, and I would say you know, about 80, 80% have experienced some form of the psychological and or physiological consequence. For example, one of the women said that she would throw up every morning, but only on the days that she knew she had to come to school because of all the anxiety and stress she had because of what she was dealing with on campus every day. Um, one of our guests, I mentioned earlier, these dots interestingly connect every day. One of our guests earlier suggested that we need a, a teaching in this country, a teaching on a variety of things. Uh, and you raise this issue now of microaggressions. Uh, and I'm wondering whether or not you think uh, and whether or not there's any evidence in your research that the, that the larger community in this country, uh, outside of uh, black folk, have any understanding truly of what we mean when we say microaggressions. I'm, I'm just wondering whether or not um, it's one thing to be arrogant about something. It's another thing to be ignorant about something. I don't mean ignorant as in stupid, just I mean ignorant as in unaware. I, I'm wondering whether or not we think that, that, that many in the larger community understand what we mean and what we, what we are having to deal with when we talk about these, uh, these microaggressions. What say you? Absolutely, absolutely not. But I, I don't even feel like it's just them. I know that there are a lot of black folks as well that that that, that don't know about it, especially undergrad. So when I talk to undergraduate women or men, black women specifically, about it, most of them are just like, "Oh, that's what that that, that that's what that's called." Like they experience them, but haven't had the actual language for it. Um, and the, and the, the the same thing goes for racial battle fatigue, right? So when I explain that to them and talk to them, they're like, "Oh, so I'm not crazy." It's it's not just me, right? So all all of us experience it, but not. Uh, I think we white folks that are you know that that don't know about it. I think it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And 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 again, back to this notion of a, of a national teaching. Uh, not me. I don't mean to be, be tongue in cheek about that, but to the extent that that many people do not understand, as you said a moment ago, what we mean. Uh, by microaggressions, what we have to navigate our way through every day. Is there something to be done about that? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to have to deal with it. It's a, another thing uh, to figure out a way to explain it to other people. Is there something that, that, that resonates with you in that regard? Oh, absolutely. I think ed- education is wildly important, which is why I, I, I do the work that I do. Um, I do trainings at, you know, different institutions and corporations to, one, explain what racial microaggressions are, because a lot of folks are doing them un- 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 unintentionally, mm-hmm. right? So they need to be made aware of what they're doing, but then also to explain the very severe, sometimes fatal co- consequences of it. I think because microaggressions are seen as these small and insignificant things, people aren't understanding. Like, no, these things add up and eventually are causing these fatal consequences and health concerns for black folks and other folks of color. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get to a place where the country will accept the notion that you've advanced of uh, of, uh, uh, 
giving black folk uh, uh, black bereavement leave. But I but I am curious as to whether or not you think that on this side of the murder of George Floyd and we could add Tyree Nichols to that and a long list of people. But George Floyd was obviously uh, was a, a Kairos moment, if you will, uh, when it comes to people understanding uh, the way race works in this country, oftentimes leading to the death of African-Americans. Uh, I'm wondering, though, whether or not you think that uh, we are making progress, whether or not we're headed in the right directions with people understanding at least a little bit better now than they did some years ago, this notion of microaggression? Um, I, I would say, yes, we're making progress in terms of more folks becoming aware. Um, I don't know that we're making as much progress in terms of folks actually doing something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yet I'm, I'm I'm I am at least buoyed by the fact maybe you are or are not as a as a professor you tell me by all of the books um, it it seems to me that when you have books about uh, how to be an anti racist and et cetera et cetera et cetera uh, being uh, sold in 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 high ratios and you have books uh, about uh, this kind of subject matter on the top and all down the New York Times bestseller list. Somebody's buying these books. Somebody's trying to learn. Somebody's trying to be empowered. Yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, yes, no, right? Because a, a lot of it is, is performance, right? There, there are folks that buy the book because they, they, they want to take a picture on Instagram. Like, hey, I bought this book. Uh. Like, are you actually <laughs> reading it? And then even if you do read it, are you implementing what it is you are reading? Um, so, yes, books are being bought, but that doesn't mean that changes actually happen. We're talking to Dr. Angel Jones of Southern Illinois uh, University uh, about a provocative piece she wrote some days ago called uh, uh, Advocating for, I should say, Black Bereavement Leave and the response she's gotten to that. Uh, I have not as yet gotten to ask her specifically the kind of response she has received from African-Americans. One would think uh, that this notion that she's raised of black bereavement leave would be understood at least by African-Americans. We will find out when we come forward after news traffic and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're tuned in to KBLA Talk for today. You do, in fact, belong here, and I'm glad to have you with us in this hour. Our guest is Dr. Angel Jones, professor at Southern Illinois University. Uh, and uh, she wrote a piece, in case you've just tuned in some days ago, in Times Higher Education. And in the piece, she advocates for what she calls black bereavement leave. Uh, and she lit a fire <laughs> when she published this piece calling for black bereavement leave. Uh, and we've been talking about that in this hour. Uh, and we talked earlier, Dr. Jones, about the response you received from the right, the political right. Uh, the story got your article got picked up by the Daily Mail that blew it up. And then Fox News found it and they went crazy with it. So uh, we can only imagine the things that Fox News uh, had to say about this, uh, given what they've done to uh, CRT, critical race theory. So they ran crazy with that. Now they're running crazy with your piece about black bereavement. Um, so we know the kind of response you've gotten from the political right. You talk about the hate mail you've received, the death threats, all the times you've been called nigger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We got that established. But I, I, I'm anxious to hear, and I'm sorry, you have to, sorry you've had to endure that, but I am anxious to hear the kind of response you've had from folk who look like you, from black folk. Tell me about that part. Um. It has been wildly uh, positive, especially when the article first came out. Um, I think my original article came out like two weeks ago. Um, and people really feel seen. They say that they feel valued. Um, I think because a lot of us, like, we're just so used to dealing with it. Like, we feel like we, like, that's it. Like, that's what it is. Like, we're black in this country. This is what happens. And we should just have to go back to work and, and suck it up. Um, but I think this being 
talked about publicly, folks are just like, oh, no, like, yeah, yeah, she's right. Like, I, I, I do deserve time off, right? Like, what I'm feeling is real, and I'm not the only person that's feeling it. Um, so there, there was just this sense of validation for a lot of them. Yep. Um, you've mentioned the death of Tyree Nichols. We all know that story of this young brother being murdered uh, in Memphis. In this case, you got a black man being murdered by other black people. Um, and so we all know that story uh, all too well. Uh, clearly, um, that affected you. It impacted you. I- I'm, I'm curious as to how the incident, though, impacted your teaching, how it e- uh, impacted your emotional well-being, and whether or not I should make something of the fact that however it impacted you, it was violence from black folk uh, against black folk. Your thoughts? Um, it definitely impacted me while I was writing the email to my students trying to create space. Like I was crying while, while writing it and that has happened several times. Um, so like I was at a space where I'm like, okay, I'm not ready to deal with this emotion, but I also want to be there for, for my students. Um, so I sent the email that Friday, which was the, the day that the video was released. So I held like a virtual space for them on Sunday, um, where, where we, we met via Zoom, we cried together, we talked about it together. Um, and then we also talked about it again in, in, in class, kind of put it in perspective for them because I, I, I teach higher ed and student affairs, right? So I teach graduate students, right? So helping them, okay, so how do you cope with this while also helping your students because they they have undergraduate students that they're responsible for. Um, so for me, like, yes, it's traumatic, but I like being able to create space for my students, but it definitely is hard. It was definitely hard. Like, I, I cried in front of them. Right, because I'm I'm human, but I always create a space for my students where they feel like they can show up as their authentic selves, and 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 I and I do the same thing. I um, mean, as a black woman, like yes, I'm an educator, but I'm a black woman first. Um, so I was very open with them about how I was I was struggling, and I think that that gave them space and permission to also be as vulnerable as they needed to be. To your point of being an educator, uh, you obviously are uh, again an academician, and your piece is written specifically. Uh, about why universities and colleges uh, do and can expect that professors and others uh, just show back up to work without having time to grieve and to process their emotions in situations and circumstances and moments like these, these being, of course, the murder of Tyree Nichols. So my question uh, forthrightly and directly is what you think the consequences are of expecting black educators to return to work as usual without taking that time off to grieve and to process emotions? Uh, negative health consequences for us, um, both psychological and physiological. Um, I think, you know, a lot of institutions and corporations, like, they, they, they care about the bottom line, right, and how efficient their employees are. But it's nearly impossible to be efficient at your job when you are suffering from severe trauma, when you're experiencing severe health-related um, consequences. Like, it, it, it's just not possible. Um, so I think that they're not a thing. I know that they're putting us in situations um, that are bad for our health, our our well-being, our peace, our joy, all of it. Mm. So what do you think then that institutions can do, ought to be doing to better support faculty of color uh, and, for that matter, retain them in the long run? Um, I mean, one, they can address their own racial trauma that, 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 that they're causing, right? So in a piece, I'm talking about, you know, the racial trauma that we experience because of police brutality and things outside of the university. Um, but that is, you know, c- coupled with the fact that we're already existing in racially hostile environments where microaggressions and things like that are happening. Um, so they could kind of start in their own metaphorical backyard, right, to kind of to, to, to deal with what's going on. Um, in the article, I also talk about 
California, like we should have access to free to free counseling. I feel like everyone should, um, but we should specifically have culturally competent counselors that can talk about racial advocacy, right? They can actually identify what the symptoms are. Um, one what one type of microaggression is known as a micro invalidation. And what that is is like when we as black folks talk about what we're experiencing and our experiences are invalidated or we're told, Oh, well you're just being, you know, too too sensitive. So when us as a black person we go to see a therapist, um, you know, talk about our trauma and then we're invalidated, it just really tra- traumatizes us, right? So having a counselor that actually knows the, um, you know, the the the, 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 the signs and the symptoms that can actually help us process it is what we need, and I think institutions should be providing for us. You talked earlier in this conversation about counseling, uh, and I thought when you used that word um, of the ways in which uh, schools across this country, colleges, universities, high schools, uh, grade schools, junior high, whenever there is some major crisis, uh, some shooting, some some something that happens in a particular uh, place, the institution uh, moves swiftly, typically, to provide counseling to help people cope with whatever just happened uh, in said place. Um, so we do that for students. Um, but you use the, the word counseling uh, uh, directly connected to what we do not offer, uh, academicians, professionals, uh, oftentimes in situations and circumstances like these. So talk to me about your call for counseling uh, for black professionals in places and spaces uh, where uh, trauma happens. Um, so, yeah, so as as, um, as higher ed professionals, we, we always provide that space. Well, we, we should be providing that space to students when there's, when there's any, any, any type of tragedy, not just racial, you know, tragedies. Um, and specifically, those will include, you know, extra counselors on, on, on campus, um, or if a student needs time off, or if a student needs, like, an extension or stuff, like, you know, just different opportunities for them to be supported, to, you know, to feel welcome, to feel um, like their humanity is being acknowledged. Um, but us as faculty members, we're expected to contribute to the providing of those opportunities for students, which we absolutely should do because we're educated. So, like, I'm not saying that I don't want to do that because I do, but we need our humanity to be acknowledged as well, right? So, so we need access to additional mental health for, for professionals, right? Like, we need space created for us that where where we can just go and, and grieve and talk and do those things, right? So I think... For us as educators, right, I think it's a little different from us and other professions just because we're not just responsible for us when we go to work. Like, it's it, it's not just a task, right? Like, I'm responsible for 100 students that I also have to pour into and take care of. Um, and I think that the, the institution, they're not acknowledging our humanity, just the fact that we're educators and we should be acknowledging the humanity of our students, but all of our humanity. Yep. Um, as you mentioned earlier, you're, you're in an airport and we didn't know that. Uh, if we had known that, we would have scheduled you for another time because your phone line has not been the best in this hour. That said, um, we've been uh, we've been uh, we've been tracking you as best we can. And I, I thought I heard you reference this earlier and I want to come to it more expressly now. And that is whether or not you do, in fact, think that other marginalized groups such as indigenous or Hispanic faculty members should also be uh, 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 allowed to take uh, bereavement leave, as you put it. Oh, absolutely. I, I absolutely believe that anyone that is experiencing racial trauma should be able to uh, uh, emotionally process that that trauma. And if that, in, if that includes a day off, then yes, absolutely. 
We're talking with Dr. Angel Jones of Southern Illinois University about her provocative piece in Times Higher Education. Uh, advocating for black bereavement leave. We'll continue our conversation with her when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. now. Let's unpack a little bit more Dr. Angel Jones about her provocative piece in Times Higher Education about black bereavement leave on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, Let me ask Dr. Jones whether or not in your experience you have seen uh, that institutions of higher learning do take seriously the health and welfare, health and welfare of black faculty? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I mean, that's not to say that they don't exist, but mm-hmm. I have never been at an institution where I feel like at a systemic institutional level that that, that is a priority. Um, I think a lot of schools care about their rec- recruitment of black faculty, but not the retention of us. And part of that retention would be ensuring our well-being and folks aren't doing that intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that leads me to ask then, how do you think we go about centering the voices and experiences of uh, black folk in a conversation such as this, if our voices being raised, if our, uh, ex- our feelings being expressed lead to the kind of pushback that you receive for writing this article about black bereavement leave? Um, I think research is, is, is a big way. Um, I think that's one thing in, in, the, in higher ed that folks actually listen to is, is data, um, which, is why that, which is why I do the research I do, which is why the, Dr. Smith, who coined the term re, um, racial battle fatigue, does that research. Um, I, think, I think the more research you do, the more data, um, both qualitative and quantitative, that we can provide. I think the harder it is for institutions to push back and say that this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. When you say there are ways in which we can use public scholarship to educate, advocate, and liberate people, what do you mean by that expressly? Um, yeah, so that, that that's the, the title of my recent book, Street Scholar, mm-hmm. um, and I'm talking about specifically how I've been able to use social media as an educational tool that increases access to um, academic scholarship and other things like that. Um, so for the past two years, I've been on both Instagram um, and Twitter really talking about social justice-related issues typically um, related to race. Um, so I'm now up to 60,000 followers on Instagram. I have reels and videos that have mi- millions of views, and those are specifically focused on racial justice issues. Because I feel like within the academy, we say we do this work for the community, but then we don't make that work accessible to the community, and I just don't believe in that. Um, I serve the community, and I want to make sure that our work is accessible to them. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm a huge proponent of public scholarship. Mm-hmm. You think you think more educators ought to ought to, ought to uh, consider that that option, consider that route, public scholarship using social media. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think public scholarship in in many different forms. I happen to use social media, um, but absolutely, because I feel like it, just the reach that it has, I think, is important. I think our ability to impact the the, ne- the next generation, um, because there are so so many teenagers, right, and undergrads that are on social media that wouldn't necessarily read an, an, an academic journal, but because they follow me and, and engage with my content, they're still able to get that same information in a way that they can understand. Let me thank Dr. Angel Jones for being our guest in this hour. Her book is called Street Scholar, Using Public Scholarship to Educate, Advocate, and to Liberate. The article that we spent most of our time talking about in this hour uh, was written in Times Higher Education and then uh, the Daily News.
News, Daily Mail picked it up, and then Fox News got a hold to it. So you can find it everywhere. But she's advocating in this article for what she calls black bereavement leave. And I wanted to spend some time interrogating that notion, uh, what she meant by it, how it be, uh, might be applied, and the kind of response she's had to boldly proclaiming that because of what black folk endure, uh, we ought to be in spaces and places uh, allowed to take Again, a black bereavement leave. Dr. Jones, thank you for the conversation. All the best to you. Safe travels, and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Same to you. When we come forward, a few closing thoughts uh, before we wrap our program today on KBLA Talk 1580. Two uh, quick reminders before we uh, get out of here for today and uh, come back here tomorrow morning. Lord willing to do it all over again, 9 a.m. to 12 noon Pacific time. Um, do not forget to get today, 4.35 and every day during the trial of Mark Woody Thomas, uh, United States versus uh, MRT. Um, you can tune into Ariva Martin in real time, uh, and Ariva will be in conversation with our justice correspondent, Attorney Dion Raymond, and they will be breaking down what happened in court today, uh, including, of course, the opening statements from the prosecution uh, in this case. So today at 4.35 p.m. and every day for the next uh, four, five, six weeks. We don't know exactly how long this trial is going to run, but the judges told us it could be four to six weeks. Uh, and so every day uh, at 435, only on KBLA Talk for Kennedy, can you get your daily download on what happened in the courtroom today? Once again, that's Ariva Martin in real time, 435 Ariva and our justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, today and every day. Um, also, for those who heard our uh, radio play last week uh, called The Return, a, 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 a radio play that imagines uh, Malcolm and Martin returning to Earth 50 plus years after their respective assassinations to sit for a conversation for one hour. Uh, they come back to Earth to talk to some guy named Tavis Smiley and uh, Tavis gets a chance to query them uh, in real time about contemporary issues. Uh, and uh, the response to that radio play last week has just been off the chain. Uh, and so we literally posted uh, earlier this week some videos. So there are at least three videos of footage that we shot live uh, in real time uh, during the radio play that you'll want to see. So if you want to see uh, uh, these two actors and yours truly in conversation in studio, uh, some great behind-the-scenes footage featuring Gerald C. Rivers, who played Dr. King, and Maurice Kitchen, who played Malcolm X, in this radio play called The Return. Go to any of our socials at KBLA1580, especially our YouTube channel, uh, and you can see some footage from inside the studio on that particular day. Now that you know those two things, I am out of here. It's time now to make room for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson. To be followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Naja Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way, it don't matter. We got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, until tomorrow morning, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.